This is a Sunday talk by Joel titled "Nothing Attained," recorded Sunday, October twenty-sixth, two thousand and eight, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So this was a question left in the question box.、Uh, Joel, I have heard of late. That one does not gain anything upon realizing the illusory nature of self, rather that something dies or is removed. Question: How much of the impetus to improve ourselves falls away with the self? Does one lose the desire to be more healthy, learn, become effective in the world, etc.? What comes from self? And what from selfs? And he's or she is spelling self in the first case with a small s, in the second case with a large s. And this comes、uh, from the Hindu tradition, where there's the small egoic self, and it's usually an English spell with a small s. And then there's the Atman, the the true self, the self that is identical with the ultimate, and that's spelled with a capital S. So the end of the question there is what comes from the little egoic self, and what comes from your true self. So、uh, this is kind of a startling teaching、uh, that, first of all,、uh, nothing is gained with enlightenment. I mean, most of the things we do in life, we、uh, struggle to attain something, to achieve something. And the person who wrote this question is saying they've heard that this isn't true of enlightenment. So let's check this out. Here's what、uh, the Buddha's disciple Subhuti says. He asks the Buddha, "World honored one." In the attainment of the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, did the Buddha make no acquisition whatsoever? And the Buddha replies, "Just so, Subhuti. Through the consummation of incomparable enlightenment, I acquired not even the least thing. Wherefore, it is called consummation of incomparable enlightenment." So basically, saying that's the definition of it. Nothing is acquired. Nothing is attained.、Uh, now here's the Hasidic master, Menachem Nahum. Totally different tradition, different time, different place. And Azadik, by the way, is a seeker who becomes eventually Azadik, a spiritual master. Now it is known that the higher the rung that Azadik attains, the more he will see himself as nothing, having seen so much of the presence of God. The intensity of that presence increases as he continues to reach upward, but finally he must realize that he has in fact attained nothing at all. And here's the、uh, 20th century Hindu mystic Ananda Moyama, and here's what she says: Nothing has happened. To be able to understand this is very fortunate. If you can understand that nothing has happened, you have indeed been blessed with inner vision. So here, three mystics from three different traditions, and I could go on,、uh, all saying the same thing. This is what we like to do at the center, of course, is sort of triangulate these. We we're trying to look for what is universal in these teachings. Now, there's a lot of stuff that isn't universal. It's it's local. It's tied to a particular time and place or custom. But we're trying to sort out what is universal. So this is a universal teaching. Nothing is attained. Specifically, what is not attained is new conceptual knowledge.
This is one thing a lot of people think, uh, well, enlightenment must uh, confer upon you some a very esoteric uh, worldview. Maybe you're now finally going to understand the structure of the universe. This was uh, partly my idea. I had a sort of a platonic idea that this veil would pass away and I'd see the archetype standing behind all these forms. But there's no acquisition of any new conceptual knowledge. In fact, realization shows you that all conceptual knowledge is imaginary. It's literally imaginary. The concepts and thoughts create and form distinctions which then get superimposed on the world. And the reality is a non-dual reality in which there are no real distinctions. Here's what the Hindu sage Shankara says. No matter what a deluded man may think he is perceiving, he is seeing Brahman and nothing but Brahman. Brahman is their term for the ultimate. This universe, which is superimposed upon Brahman, is nothing but a name. It's nothing but a thought. We start to name things, and in our naming things, we pick out one thing from another. So there's a lamp, there's a clock, there's a heater, there's a chair. And we are creating these distinctions, and we are superimposing them on the naked experience of non-duality. And then if we take these distinctions to be real, they actually hide that non-dual reality, which is, of course, what most of us do. This is the definition of delusion. This is why the Christian mystic St. John of the Cross writes, To reach union with the wisdom of God, a person must advance by unknowing rather than by knowing. We cannot get there through figuring it out. I say this over and over and over. But I know how deep this desire is to finally understand. We're finally going to understand our lives. We're finally going to understand how the world works. We're finally going to understand politics, whatever it is. <laughs> and you're not. And not only that, realization ultimately shows you, in fact, you can't ever understand anything through conceptual knowledge. It can be very useful. It can even be beautiful. Those people who are into mathematics, at least, you know, tell me that it's like, like a symphony. And I can sometimes get a little taste of that. But it doesn't really bring us true knowledge. And so you end up, after you're enlightened, knowing you know nothing. Always know nothing. And you always begin from a place of knowing nothing, which is a great virtue. And then you can play with knowledge, uh, conceptual knowledge, but you're never stuck on thinking, well, this is the way it is. And then, of course, that's not the way it is. So it sounds like a deprivation not to know anything, but it's actually very liberating. Then also, realization does not confer upon you a, a new state or a new kind of emotion. And a lot of people think that way and talk that way. Well, once you enter the state of enlightenment, then you're going to be free, then you're going to be this and that, as though it's some place you could go. And that's simply not true. Except, incidentally, a realization may occur to you in a special state, in a state of samadhi, or uh, in a state of uh, absolute contentment, or something like that. But that state will pass. 
And realization will almost certainly unleash an explosion of bliss, which might linger for days or weeks or even months. But eventually that too will pass. That's not it. So this is why often in the traditions, realization is called abiding and non-abiding, or dwelling and non-dwelling. Here's what the great Tibetan master Longchenpa says about this. The utterly pure view has no extreme or center. It cannot be indicated by saying it is this or it is that. Since there is no bondage or liberation, there is no going, coming, or dwelling. So people sometimes wonder, well, if I get enlightened, I'll enter this state, and then what would happen if I fell out of it? There's no falling out of it. There's no place to go. That's part of the freedom. It's non-fixed. Here's the Sufi, Ibn Arabi. The people of perfection have realized all stations and states and passed beyond. The root of this knowledge of Allah is the station reached ultimately by the Gnostics. That is, no station. So, it's not about entering some state. It's not about having some special emotional experience. Something else. And then realization is certainly not about acquiring supernatural powers. Uh, most traditions recognize that a seeker on the way, on the path, will start having paranormal experiences. Uh, I had some. I had some telepathic experiences. I had many experiences of synchronicity, which is, as Jung defined it, where there's these coincidences that happen in your life that are meaningful, but there's no causal connection that you can see, and they lead you on. I had uh, a, a, a prophetic dream. And regardless of what you think of these paranormal things, in terms of are they objectively real or not, most seekers will experience some of this, even if you say, well, that was just a coincidence and whatnot. And most traditions recognize that this is going to happen. But it is a byproduct of the path. It is certainly not the goal. And it is neither necessary nor sufficient for enlightenment. Here's what, uh, oh, this is Anandamoyama again. Here's what she says. Do not remain entangled in supernormal powers. Supernormal powers are but a stage. They may be beneficial, they may also be harmful. But through them you will not attain to the supreme, the ultimate. There's a nice story about a Zen monk in uh, old Japan. He lived in a little village and a traveling Shinto priest came uh, to town. And he was a miracle worker, and he would do things like the rope trick. You know, he'd throw a rope in the air and then climb up it and stuff like that and produce rabbits out of hats and all this. And crowds from the village gathered to see him. And uh, so one day he was performing this in front of the whole village, and the monk uh, walked by, and the uh, Shinto priest is on top of the rope, the rope trick, and he says, You there, you see what I can do? What are your miracles? What can you do? And the Zen monk says, well, my miracle is when I'm hungry, I eat. When I'm tired, I sleep. And this really gets to the heart of the matter here. It's not about anything extraordinary, except you could say it's to see that what is ordinary is extraordinary. That the miracle is sleeping and eating and breathing and walking. And just those ordinary things that we do, 
we see in a whole new light. And any of the supernatural powers, I mean, it's like a gilding the lily. They're not miraculous at all compared to the core miracle of being. So it's not about acquiring anything except this realization that the miracle's already here. So, if nothing is acquired in terms of knowledge, in terms of states, in terms of powers and all that, you might well ask, well, what's the point? I mean, why do all these arduous practices, meditation, follow precepts and all this? And the point is not to gain anything, it's simply to recognize something that is already true. Right now, right here, without any supernatural powers, without any special philosophy, without any special kind of experience or state. Right now is to recognize the truth of what is going on here. And what is that truth? Your true identity is God. It's Brahman. It's the Buddha nature. It's Tao. It's consciousness itself, as we like to say. And this is shocking and radical if we really, you know, grok it. And in fact, several uh, great mystics were killed for saying that, namely Jesus and uh, Manshur Halaj, who was a great Sufi. But what does this mean that you are God? In the Hindu tradition, they have this slogan, Tatvam Asi. It's the central message of the ancient Upanishads, which form the, the core of mystical scripture for most of the Hindu tradition. Tatvam Asi means that thou art. That is Brahman. Thou is your true self, Atman. And there's this identity, this equation. That thou art. Here's uh, the Tibetan master, Gendon Rinpoche. We do not have to go out and find Buddhahood. It is something we already have. We simply have to recognize it. We're looking for Buddhahood as though it's something uh, in the future or uh, something special. You had to be in a special state or something like that. It's already here. And the Buddhists have a nice way of saying that. It's like a a man who has a very precious gem sewn into his garment and he doesn't know it, so he thinks he's poor. He goes around begging, you know, on street corners and stuff like that. And he's got the Hope Diamond right on him. Just doesn't know it. Here's what Meister Eckhart, the great Christian mystic, says. Some simple people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they hear. It is not so. God and I, we are one. You're never going to see God in the sense of, oh, here he is, finally. You know, with the, the violins and the trumpets and the light coming down like in the Hollywood movies from the sky and there's that great face. No. Let me just say, it's not just that you are God. So, I mean, don't let your head get swollen with this. Everything is God. Everything is God. Wherever you look is God. Whatever you touch, whatever you taste. Right now you're breathing God. This is why Rumi writes, All pictured forms are reflections in the water of the stream. When you rub your eyes, indeed, all are he. 
And that's what we see. We see these reflections. All this is reflections in the stream. And it's all reflections of this underlying non-dual reality. In Zen, they say, enlightenment is you know, carrying water and chopping wood. Not special. Zen, particularly, is a very good antidote to some of the more flowery expressions of this in other traditions. And then you come to Zen, and it's very down-to-earth. This is it, right here. Stomp, stomp, bop, bop. There she is, God, walking in the door, right now, in front of your eyes. You just don't see it. Have a seat, God. So, why do all these practices? What practices do is dismantle the delusion that we are something else than God. Namely, some little, small, egoic, separate self. Sitting up here in these heads, you know, like I like to say, like a crane operator. And you have the sense there's somebody up here working these levers, you know, moving the hand around. This is a delusion. And as long as we're suffering from this delusion, then we can't see the truth. You know, there's some psychotics who think they're Napoleon. So if John Doe thinks he's Napoleon, as long as he thinks he's Napoleon, he can't realize who he truly is. He's got to get rid of that illusion that he's Napoleon. This is what a mystical path is about, getting rid of this illusion, so the truth can be seen. Here's what the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing, the anonymous author of The Cloud of Unknowing says. You must realize an experience for yourself that unless you lose self, you will never reach your goal. For whoever you are, in whatever you do, or however you try, that elemental sense of your own blind being will remain between you and your God. Here's Shankar, the great Hindu sage. He agrees. When the ego is completely destroyed, the mind is cleared of the obstacles which obstruct its knowledge of the oneness with Brahman. And here's Rumi. Rumi's the great Sufi poet, if I didn't mention that. Indeed, selflessness is the goal of the path, for it is nothing other than selfhood. And again, capital S here, your true self. So, you don't gain anything in enlightenment, but you do lose something. And the person who wrote that question pointed that out. That's what they'd heard. You lose the sense of self. It is removed. In many traditions, it's described as a kind of death, spiritual death. Uh, here's what Lali Shori, she was a great Hindu mystic of the 14th century. She describes what happened to her. When the sun of knowledge rose, the dew of ignorance disappeared. When I realized my oneness with the name of God, my eyeness was obliterated, and Lali found peace. So, this is a, a core teaching of mysticism, this teaching of selflessness. And really, it's what the path is all about. All we need to do is remove this delusion that we are something other than who we truly are. And it's, as the Hindus say, it's as obvious as holding a fruit in the palm of your hand. But this teaching about selflessness uh, scares us too. 
And it causes a tremendous ambivalence about enlightenment. On the one hand, we want it if we're responding to the teachings, because something deep down in us actually knows it's true. And yet, on the other hand, it sounds scary. What do you mean myself has to die? What do you mean I'm going to lose myself? Joseph Goldstein, who's an American Buddhist meditation teacher, tells a story about how he was once teaching a class at a university as a guest teacher or whatever about uh, Buddhism and enlightenment. And, you know, he described this business of anatman, there is no little self, and you lose the sense of little self, and you discover your Buddha nature and all that. And afterwards, there was a little discussion, and one of the college students raised their hand and said, well, that sounds great, but I've got a lot of things to do first. I've got a lot to accomplish in life. As though, if you got enlightened, you couldn't do all those things. And I don't know who this questioner was who wrote the question here that I'm dealing with today, but I suspect there's some concern in the way the question's phrased. I mean, if you lose your sense of self, why would you go to a doctor? Why would you do anything? Why would you take out the garbage? So let me try to then get directly to that. The first part of the answer is that losing your sense of self is also to lose all the suffering that goes with a sense of self. The worry, the guilt, the shame, all those sorts of emotions, which I call echo emotions or reflexive emotions that depend on some uh, sense of I being there. They aren't emotions like hunger or thirst or desire or things like that. But these, from a spiritual point of view, neurotic emotions that are built around the sense of self just evaporate. There's no one there at the center of it. Here's what Anandamoyama says. So long as the sense of me and mine remains, there is bound to be sorrow and want in the life of the individual. So one of the purposes of the path is to show us through our own experience by a detailed examination of our experience, by watching how our self-centeredness, the consequences it produces, to show us that this sense of self that we grow up with thinking of as a great treasure, our most precious possession, is actually a terrible burden. It's a milestone around our necks. It's what's causing our suffering. And we think, well, if only I could enhance this sense of self, I could protect it, I could secure it, finally I could be happy. And it's like you're trying to enhance and protect the hot coal that's burning you. It's what's causing the suffering. It's what's causing that fundamental loneliness, the fundamental sense of inadequacy, uh, all those things. Here's the cloud of unknowing again. Every man has plenty of cause for sorrow, but he alone understands the deep universal reason for sorrow who experiences that he is. Just that existential experience. You know, it's already being cut off from the cosmos. You don't have to do anything. Nothing has to happen to you. Just that barrier that cuts you off from everything else. There is this core loneliness in our being. This is what drives us to accumulate and acquire all this stuff. We know something's wrong here. We know we're unhappy. And that's wisdom. That's not uh, delusion. The trouble is we keep barking up the wrong tree. We keep trying to get things to fill that gap that are ephemeral. They're not going to last. 
And here's what Rumi writes about his realization. I have become senseless. I have fallen to selflessness. In absolute selflessness, how joyful I am with self. Expressing some of this sense of the freedom that you can experience. To be free of this burden. To let it go. To put it down. The second part of the answer is that there is no self to improve. That's true. But losing the sense of self is not losing a body-mind. I mean, as long as it's physically alive. It's just a total shift in attitude towards it. Here's what the uh, Buddhist Lakamatara Sutra says. The old body continues to function, and the old mind serves the old body. But now it is free from the control of mortal mind. There has been an inconceivable transformation death by which the false imagination of his particularized individual personality has been transcended by a realization of his oneness with the universalized mind of Buddhahood, from which realization there will be no recession. So, I think the easiest way to express this new relationship, at least the way I look at it, is you think of your body as a pet or a valued animal. You know, that could be a cat or a dog or a donkey or a horse or something like that. And, you know, if your pet gets sick, you take it to the vet, don't you? It's not you don't care about it. So it's not about having disregard for your body-mind. And just the way you might uh, teach uh, your dog tricks. You might... Uh, or, uh, or tasks. Our dog we have is uh, actually a sheep dog. She should be out there on a range herding sheep. That's what her instincts are. They're bred for it, but then they have to be trained and all that. So it's not about not uh, learning new skills. And it's not even about not being effective in the world. But the motivation is different. Instead of being effective in order to enhance or protect this sense of self, the motivation is love and compassion for others. It's being effective in the world for others. So, I just speak for myself as a teacher. I'm constantly trying to improve my teaching skills. I listen to my tapes and, uh, you know, I adjust my style of notes and I try to uh, cut out the uh, uhs in my talks and so forth, you know. Uh, not everybody who has realization is going to even be a teacher. You might be a poet like Rumi. Or you might be a musician like Hazrat Inyat Khan. And the, all these are skills. I mean, they're not just born with them. So the fears we have about somehow uh, losing our contact with the body-mind and that we will neglect it are unfounded. It's just a different relationship with it. So, the last part of the question is, what comes from self with a little s, and what comes from self with a big S? And this part's easy. Nothing comes from self with a little s, because it doesn't exist. Absolutely nothing comes from that self. It does not exist. It's like saying, what comes from unicorns? Now, you might say, what comes from the delusion that little self exists, and that's suffering in all its forms. And what comes from self with a big S? Everything. Everything.
This room, the chair you're sitting on, the sunlight coming through the window, the ugly turquoise paint that <laughs> some people think anyway is ugly. It all comes from self. It's all the great display. It's the play, the lila. And that's what we fail to appreciate when we have this dualistic view of things. I think uh, Ramana Maharshi sums this up very well. He says, when he's talking about the self of the capital S here, the self itself is the world. The self itself is I. The self itself is God. All is Shiva. All is the self. So, that's my answer to uh, our questioner. If you're in the room, I hope it was helpful. And if you have any other questions uh, you want to follow up on, yes, Pat? Well, um, the little crane man in my head, which led me here, has is, is got a little lever that he's saying, yeah, I believe all this. I see it makes sense and all this. It's my, my thinking is turns into a belief. So where is the bridge that goes to the realization? This is, I think, what I always seem to be stuck on. Is it like, from my Christian background, I think, is it this flash of grace suddenly, and the grace of God, oh, he let me, let, you know, I see the light, or, um, there's, um, I mean, I've been coming here almost five years now, and it's, uh, gosh, it's, it's, this is it, this seems like the way to go, the, these are all thoughts, of course, I know that, and belief, and belief for thoughts, and the little praying man, and all that, but, there's that little bridge that just isn't quite, you know, I've heard it explained as a film of some kind sometimes. It's just, uh, how do you break through that? Or, well, I mean, it, it, again, it's my desire and all this other stuff that's not good. And, I mean, <laughs> no, 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 that's not, it's not that it's not good. The way you break through it is through practice. And uh, there is always some element of grace, something that is beyond what we, little self, can do. So that's just the fact of the matter. But what we can do is to practice, practice, practice. And we just never know when that's going to uh, break through. You know, Jesus said, knock and it shall be opened to you. And seek and you shall find. He didn't say, knock and in about three days it will be opened to you, you know. Uh, yeah, he didn't put a time limit on it. So, uh, and so there's this range out there. If you look at the historical record, everything from Wei Ning, who was selling firewood at the courtyard of an inn and heard somebody chanting a Buddha Sutra and his mind opened up like that to my teacher, Dr. Wolf, for instance, who was on a path 25 years. So you've got a little ways to go if you've been coming to the center only five years. I want to get it. I want to start off over. golden years. Wow. Actually, according to Eastern traditions, you don't start all over. In fact, Wei Ning attributed his quick awakening to practice he'd done in a previous life. He said he must have had a lot of practice in a previous life. So it's not wasted. But what we can do is practice. And what we're dealing with is not something volitional. It's conditioning. And that's why we can understand the teachings, we can have faith in the teachings and all that. And yet, the delusion of self continues to roll on. We continue to respond to the world as though there was some separate self in here. And so it's through practices like meditation where we get to slow everything down and actually watch how this works, how thoughts arise, how thoughts create a little story, how that story is imaginary, 
and we get to know our own minds, our own thoughts, our own processes, and we get to see. And the more we can see that, the less hold it has on us. And we also do practices like working with precepts, where again, we get to see how our self-centered behavior, instead of bringing us happiness, leads to suffering. And the more we can actually see that, directly see that, we start to dissolve that conditioning. And the more we do that, the more free we become of this delusion. And, you know, it's a little bit like a house of cards, that you start pulling off a card here and a card here, and, and you never know, you're going to pull one card and the whole thing collapses. Yes, <laughs> and we don't know until we start doing, you know. We can't just go usually to that card and pull it out. Did I hand, see a hand up here? Anybody on this side of the room particularly, you've got to wave if you want to get my attention. Because, uh, no, wait a minute, this is my good eye. Oh. <laughs> I'm facing the wrong way. That's right. <laughs> yes, shout, that's right. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. I just had one more little question. Those little uh, circumsta uh, circumstantial things, a little. I've had some dreams and some thoughts of that nature that I've never had before because when I started here I began to open up more to be less scientific logical which I've always been especially and in my field too and I have had those and I'm wondering if if not you know some um, uh, uh, well I guess I'm thinking is that a sign of some kind that maybe I'm going in the right direction because I've never had or maybe I had them but didn't pay attention to it because I wasn't didn't realize that those things uh, were happening. I mean, I'm paying attention to my dreams and paying attention more closely. Right. And would that be a sign that at least it seems to be in the right direction, like a pointing finger? Yes, I would certainly take it that way. I did take it that way in my path. I don't think you have to be less scientific in your thinking. I, I think you just have to recognize that scientific thinking applies in only one area, and it's very important in one area, but it doesn't apply to the rest of things. And one of the things that happens to most people on a spiritual path, which is why I mentioned, you know, people starting to experience paranormal stuff, uh, they do start to experience it, a majority of people, is because their rigid way of viewing the universe starts to break down. And so other connections start to become apparent. And these are normally would be just screened out or dismissed. But I mean, scientifically, I've always, you know, put it to some, well, this is because of this fact. Well, yes, and, and, you know, if you're trying to diagnose the cause of a disease, it's very good to think that way. But not everything can be subjected to that kind of analysis. So when, we, when we're willing to be ignorant, when we're willing to let go of our ideas and so forth, oh, then new things start to show themselves to us. And they very much can be uh, a finger pointing. You can get guidance that way. So there's an encouragement That's for you. Encouraging. Yes. Yes, Rich. Um, I wanted to ask about the sense of self. Um, it seems when I, when I think about it, it's the way I look at it is kind of like a lot of conditioning. There's a lot of conditioning involved in, in this sense of self. In other words, preferences and just the things that this body-mind does. So I wondered if it would be more appropriate to say maybe the belief in self or a separate self rather than a sense of self is. Can you talk about what's still... Uh, yes, and belief is certainly part of that. I tend to use sense 
because this is the trouble. It's not just a question of belief. We can cease to believe that there's a self there intellectually, but that doesn't necessarily affect you know, how we act and how we perceive in the world, as you're describing. So what I mean by a sense of self is that experience of a, you know, a boundary between me and others. I still have this experience, even though I can stop believing in it at that level. And you're right, it's made up of a conditioning. It's a crude analogy, but I like to compare it to a hurricane. And, you know, they show you on these weather maps, the hurricane is forming in the Gulf and it's heading for Texas or something, and you see this mass of circulating wind and uh, rain and, you know, all this energy in the clouds, and it all circulates around an eye, an empty eye. But you can see that eye very clearly. It looks like there's something there. It's actually nothing there. But it's an illusion created by the fact that all this stuff is swirling around it. And to me, that's a good example of how our sense of self works. It sure feels like there's an eye there, and it's made of this self-centered conditioning whirling around. This pattern gets set up, and then it reinforces itself. So we act out of it, and then there's a response, and it makes us react more, and there's another response, and we build up this sense of eye. But truly speaking, there is nothing in that center. So this is why I, I use the sense of self. It's more than just a belief. Yes, sure. It's, it's kind of like a role, the sense of self. It's like, it's like you have this role. And, you know, if you have a job, and you know how when you go to work, there's a role, and people relate to you a certain way, and you relate to them a certain way. But it's always a role. And so within that role, it just flows right along. So that's your, that's your superficial identity. But you never believe that you are. For example, in my case, I don't believe that I'm a nurse when I'm at work. I never believe that. I'm just fulfilling the role. And then at the end of the day, when I'm done, I just disappear. Move out, go out. Now I'm the guy driving the car. That's my role. Whose role? The roles are always changing. Isn't that a sense of some kind? And I don't mean an egoic sense or a selfish sense, but there's a sense of a perspective. There is a perspective. And you operate within it, but you never believe it's you. And that's the difference. And so it it plays in that way and it's and it functions, but it's not who you are. So, yeah, it's semantics, I think, a little bit, what you're... Because I remember having the same kinds of questions for a long time. Gee, that's funny. When you said roll in the beginning, this is interesting how... I thought, roll? What's that? Jelly roll? <laughs> 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 Anybody else? Yes, Bill. Um, somebody said one time, and it, and it really clicked. And sometimes for me, it's like these little things that uh, what they said was, what you think has nothing to do with what you are. And that really run about. Uh, yes, that's true. It has nothing to do with what you truly are. But, you know, this is the point. We're telling ourselves a story all the time in which there's a character called I, and that's who we think we are, that character in that story that the mind keeps talking about. 
It spins this tail all day long. This is part of, uh, uh, where's Pat? This is part of why you need meditation so you can be able to observe your thoughts in a very quiet, undistracted way, and then you can see them all through the day. And you just see that I is at the center of thought. Why doesn't this thing get over with? It's a nice day out there. I'd really like to be outside. And let's see, and then I'm going to go have lunch, and I don't know where I'd want to have lunch. What would make me happy? Should I go to the cafe yummy, or should I go to McDonald's and have a greasy hamburger? I don't know, no, no, no. It's going on all day long. And that is the self that we come to identify with. That mind keeps rolling along, <laughs> and, uh, you know, there we are. Yes, Lois. I just remember the bumper sticker that I love. It says, don't believe everything you think. <laughs> Very good. And that's what we try to learn to do uh, on a spiritual path in a meditation practice. We try to learn to be able to see our thoughts, not to stop our thoughts, we can't do that, but to see our thoughts as just thought, and we don't have to believe them. That's how we get freedom from them. Then our thoughts may say this or that. The same old thoughts may come up over and over again. But we start to view them as reruns, you know, on the late night TV. You can't turn your set off, but oh, I've, I've seen that before. And you can, you know, go do something else and ignore it. No, they won't shut up. Well, eventually they... Yeah. No, they usually, you can't tell them to shut up. Well, they, as they get weaker, you know, they're not getting the attention they want and they start to die out. And those old thoughts start, start to die out. I still have wispy thoughts that come from, I don't know, childhood or whatever that just, you know, pass through. But that's the thing. You don't have to believe them. In fact, I said in the talk here that you know fundamentally they can't be true. No thought can be true at the level of we're, we're talking about truth here. It just simply can't be. It can be useful, it can be fun, it can be beautiful, it can be annoying, it can be a lot of things, but it cannot be true. Yes? Um, could you speak to, uh, well, I guess I would have to call it enhanced perception, and I'm speaking of the kind without drugs. <laughs> uh, you have to make that clear in this day and age, yes. Yeah, um, I, I was recently reading uh, Jane Roberts, who's a very great psychic of the latter 20th century and also there were a couple of mystics and I don't know who, who have described looking at you know just the everyday world and seeing um, this one fellow was in prison and he said he looked at the he looked at the um, concrete blocks that made up the walls and he said that each, each one had arias of being inside of it and um, the psychic described looking at um, the world, uh, you know, just just everything. Uh, like when she was driving in her car, she could feel the earth pushing up, you know, um, supporting the car and the car supporting her body and this kind of thing. And she would look out and she would see people and everything was imbued with something more, you know. And um, and I've had dreams where. Um, I've seen colors that were just absolutely, they had the same relationship to color as color has to black and white. You know, it was just like, whoop. Uh, and, you know, I swear I, I had no drugs, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so if you could speak to that a little bit. I, I don't know if this has got anything to do with what you were just talking about or whether it has everything to do with it or what. Yes, I would 
classify this under the under paranormal powers or you know heightened perception in that sense. It comes and goes, for one thing. Uh, it's quite common for people in, uh, who, who take up a meditation practice and get deep into it. They start seeing colors and hearing sounds and all this. Because, again, when we let go of the way we are supposed to be experienced in the world, the world starts to show us all sorts of other aspects. Uh, and we may find that in relation to our dull, normal reality, it's very striking. But ultimately, the dull, normal reality is just as divine as any enhanced perception. Mm -hmm. That's the meaning of this chopping wood and carrying water. Do you know, that, this is, that we're not striving for some extraordinary sense of perception. We're striving to see the truth of things no matter what state we're in, no matter how dull our perception is or how enhanced it is, or how non-perception we have. I mean, I'm half blind here, you know. And if you're deaf or blind or your senses are shut down in some way, ultimately it doesn't make any difference. So these kinds of things will happen to people on a spiritual path. Some people more than others. And they can be a sign of progress. Sign in the sense that I was talking to Pat about, that it means that the rigid ways of experiencing the world are starting to break up a little bit. So other things are coming through. Sometimes through that you might even get... Uh, some specific guidance, like through a dream or whatever, you know, something very specific to do, a practice to take up or all that. But that is not the goal of the quest, of a mystical quest. And there is, at the same time, there's a danger that people get distracted by that. And then they spend their lives practicing in order to have these kinds of experiences. But all these experiences are ephemeral, ultimately. Ultimately, they'll pass away. Ibn Arabi has a wonderful... Uh, he calls it a covenant, a vow you should make when you go into a retreat. And he talks about how if you make the object of your retreat God and only God, then everything that appears to you on the way, you accept it graciously. But you say, ah, but you are not God. You are through God. And you let it go. So accept it graciously, but don't be attached to it. Let it go. And so it's not God that you're seeing. It's not the infinite that you're seeing in the everyday objects. Then, if, if they're if they have this radiance, and it's no more God than uh, you know. Here, look at this. I don't know. Probably made in China clock. No more or less. This is the goal to see that it is all. It is all divine. One thing isn't more divine or a greater expression. One moment isn't even a greater expression than the last moment. Yes, right. <laughs> a little yes. How could that be? But this is the mystery part of mysticism. It's just so much more fun. <laughs> uh, yes, it is while it's going on. But this is our problem, that, that we're always pursuing what's fun. And then it's fun for a while, and then it, it's no longer fun, so then we have to go out and get it again. And then we have to go get it again. So we're like on this treadmill. And it's not going anywhere, ultimately, because we're having fun, but, you know, we're getting older, time's slipping away, and then the next thing you know, you'll be on your deathbed. It probably won't be too much fun. And then, what was it all about, Alfie, you know? Yes? As I sit here listening to you, I, I have this sense of just almost such excitement and such feeling of high, being high, of being elevated. And as soon as I say to myself, wow, isn't this 
fabulous. It goes away. Yes, it's usually. Remarkable. When we try to grasp onto things like that, it, it can't be grasped on, so it evaporates. Yeah. It, you just stop. I mean, I would just stop. As soon as I would get that notion, it just like. When I was uh, first starting out meditating, and I'd read about these states where no thought arises, a state of real clarity, and I'm meditating, and suddenly no thoughts arising, and there's just this kind of clarity and kind of enhanced perception and all that. And I said, wow, a clarity state. Well, of course, that was a thought, right? And the minute that, you know, it's like throwing a, a stone in the pond. It's totally still pond, and there you go, throw a stone in it. So, But this is the point. If we're observant, if we're mindful, it's not about always being in a clarity state, but it is about seeing how our minds interfere. They always want to jump in and comment and name things and label them and all that, and they'll do that. But we learn to ignore that, and pretty soon they do it less and less, and then other things start to make themselves known to us that don't have the label that we were trained to put on it. Well, okay, there are no more questions, no more comments. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And until we see you again, peace to you all.